For those of you that I have not had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Tim Coyle. I am a retired pastor, and my wife Mary and I moved down to Williamsburg from northern Delaware. It'll be five years ago this coming March. After more trips to Colonial Williamsburg than I can count, one day the light came on and we decided, once we're both retired, why don't we just move down there? And we did, and we're very glad that we did. And when we would be here over a weekend, this is where we would worship. So it was natural for us to come here, and we were very thankful for Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. We found a church home here and a place where we can minister and find fellowship and continue to serve the Lord. So, uh, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. Now, for those of you that uh, may not have received Camper's email, or who are visitors, or who are watching online, uh, this, as you know, is the first Sunday of Advent, and that also means this is the first of our series of Advent messages. And it was a month, maybe six weeks ago, that Camper asked me if I would uh, share in doing, uh, sharing these Advent messages with him, and I said, yes, I'd certainly be very happy to do so. And this is what Camper said that we would be focusing on, and it, I think it's a tremendous theme for a series of Advent messages. We're going to look together at the songs of Advent and Christmas that we find in the Gospel of Luke. The first is the song of Mary, that is also known as the Magnificat. The second is the song of Zacharias, who was the father of John the Baptist. And then the song of the angels, when they announced to the shepherds the birth of the Lord Jesus. And then finally, the song of Simeon, who was in Jerusalem and saw the baby Jesus, the promised Messiah, when he was taken to Jerusalem to be presented to the Lord. So we have some wonderful texts to look at for this Advent series. And as we enter into Advent, there are three certainties that both Camper and I are very sure of. The first is this is a very special, unique time of year. There's nothing like it, is there? First Advent, followed by Christmas. Just look at the things that we do in preparation for Christmas. We go outside, we cut down a perfectly good fir tree or pine tree, we bring it into our house, we put lights on it and ornaments and other decorations and actually turn it into a thing of marvelous beauty. But that's not all we go through the rest of our house and decorate it uniquely for Christmas, unlike anything we do any other time of the year. And we're not done yet. Then we go outside and we decorate the front of our houses. And we look up and down the street. We're not the only ones doing this. Our neighbors are doing it too. And some of them don't even go to church. And then you go to the public places 
in our city. And we see places that are transformed. You go to Colonial Williamsburg, a unique reef on every door in the building in Colonial Williamsburg. You look at Market, uh, Market Square, it's just Merchant Square, it's just transformed with lights and other decorations and different activities that are going on. And then to the shopping centers that, that surround our city, the same thing, decorations everywhere that we look. And it just seems that people are happier and are nicer this time of year. Now, I don't have any way to prove this, but I believe that with the birth of Jesus, and every time we have celebrated the birth of Jesus since his coming, there is such an outpouring of grace from heaven that it just overflows and touches entire communities and entire cultures. Because it's not just this country. It's every country where Christ has been part of their tradition, that they have their own customs and ways of celebrating this most special holiday. But truly, this time of year is filled with awe and wonder and joy in a way that we don't see any other time during the year. Now, the second certainty is this. We know that all of us are very busy people. Young people in school have lots to do with their studies and then perhaps being involved in sports, maybe several different sports that have events and games and practices. And maybe you're also learning uh, and taking music lessons, either to play an instrument or to sing, or maybe to dance. You're busy. But then if you're in college, you find somebody just ramped up the level of study and you're busier than you ever were before. And if you think you're busy when you're in college, when you graduate and start a career, your bosses can be very demanding of your time. You're very busy. And if you're married, perhaps you have two careers that are getting underway. And if you have children, if you are parents, well, what more needs to be said? Somebody has to take the kids to all of those practices and school events and hopefully also church events. Everybody is busy. And there are enough gray hairs here in, the, in this sanctuary that you can ask us and find out we keep pretty busy too. Retirement doesn't mean you stop doing anything. In fact, especially for Christians, this can be one of the most profitable times of serving the Lord that we ever have in our lives because we're not saddled down with the responsibilities of jobs and raising children and so on and so forth. But all of us are very, very busy. But there's a third certainty that we're very much aware of, and that is that when Advent and Christmas season come around, we get even busier. To begin with, somebody has to put all those lights and ornaments on the tree. Somebody has to do the rest of the decorating around the house. And probably you're going to have friends 
and relatives come over during this time of year. Maybe some will be from out of town and stay with you. That means more work in cleaning, cooking, baking. Yes, you're busier than ever before. And buying presents and giving presents. And you know what this means? It means that certainty number one and certainty number three are on a collision course. That joy and awe and wonder of the Christmas season and our busyness can collide. And usually what gets lost in the shuffle is that sense of wonder and awe that's associated with Christmas. So what we hope to do in this Advent series of messages is each Sunday during Advent to hopefully give you a little jolt of that awe and wonder that just saturates this season so that you don't miss it. Because I really do believe that this is a gift from God that all of us need. In this world that seems to be getting crazier and crazier, this is something that is solid and dependable and real and reassuring in our lives and can enrich us in a way that nothing else does. And then, hopefully, that will keep you going for a week. And if you start to run down toward the end of the week, the next Sunday, we're going to do it again and give you another infusion of, hopefully, a sense of awe and wonder of what this Christmas season really holds. And we'll do it again, and we'll do it again. So you pray for us that we can successfully help you to enjoy Christmas and find the richness of this season to its very fullest. Now, this um, particular Sunday, we are going to begin by looking at the Song of Mary, which is also known as the Magnificat. And I have to share with you, I have a, another purpose in uh, preaching this particular message as well. You know, there is a very, very common law of physics. In fact, it's so common you might not even associate it with the science of physics. It is simply this. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. If anybody wants to know, it's Newton's third law of motion. But very, very commonly known. But right along with that, there is a principle in human action that is almost as consistent. Now, we can't really call it a law because we can't prove it like we can scientific truths. But it happens with such frequency that we can call it a principle. And that principle is simply this. For every action, there is almost always an equal and extreme reaction. For instance, you break my finger, I break your arm. Right? It's just part of our human nature that not only do we want to get even, we want to go a little bit further. And that's why, in fact, we have in Exodus 21, uh, a verse you're all very, very familiar with, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that is not an incentive to get even. 
it actually could be read this way. An eye and only an eye for an eye. A tooth and only a tooth for a tooth. You see, it, it sets up a system of equal retribution. And in fact, right along with that, because it's very, very hard for us to limit ourselves, God in his wisdom took that out of our hands and put it in the hands of civil government. They're the ones who are to exact retribution when somebody is wrong. I've recently become a, a fan of old Western TV shows. And I find them to be very, very refreshing. There, is, there are no sexual innuendos. There is no swearing. There's no gratuitous violence. Yeah, people do get shot, but it's, it's all part of the plot. It's just not, you know, added on and on and on and on. One of my favorites is Gunsmoke. Very well written, very good scripts, good acting. And if I, if I had a nickel for every time the plot centered around this, somebody gets wronged, and somehow the marshal, Matt Dillon, finds out about it. Now, either they go and tell him, or word gets to him, and he goes and talks to the person who was wronged, and he says, hey, don't worry about Marshall. I'm going to take care of it myself. And Matt Dillon says, well, you do that, and I'll have to put you in jail, too, because you're going to break the law. You see, that is the responsibility of the civil government, not for us to take it on ourselves. But we do it to one another. Believe it or not, countries do it to one another, a major cause of wars that we have had in the history of our culture. And sad to say, we do it theologically, too. Now, we know um, that our Roman Catholic friends have a very high regard for the Virgin Mary. In fact, when they speak of the Immaculate Conception, they're not speaking of the birth of Jesus. They're speaking of the birth of Mary. And they believe, based on what is called tradition, that Mary had to be pure and sinless in order to give birth to the Christ child. Of course, we don't talk about Mary's mother needing the same thing and her mother before her, but that's what the Immaculate Conception holds. We also know that um, our Roman Catholic friends believe that um, because Mary is in heaven, next to Christ, she has his ear. And sometimes it's easier to get your prayers through to Jesus by praying to Mary. Although, you know, we read in the Bible there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So that's an area where we differ with our Roman Catholic friends. But when we take their beliefs regarding Mary as a whole, we not only reject them, but we've also basically rejected Mary. We don't talk about Mary. We've overreacted to the beliefs of Roman Catholicism. And in the process, what we have done 
is we have lost one of the very finest role models we could look for anywhere for young women in our church. Mary is an outstanding example of what a Christian young woman should be. And we should all realize that Mary, when Jesus was born and when the story uh, of the birth of Jesus takes place, Mary was probably a teenager. Mid to late teens, it was perfectly normal during that time for women, young women of that age, to get married and to begin having children. And no doubt that was the case with Mary. But in terms of her spirituality, her maturity, her humility, she's just a wonderful, wonderful example. So hopefully... This message will also serve as somewhat of a corrective to the way that we have overlooked Mary and the example that she could be for so many. Now, these four songs that we're looking at have a long and rich history in the church. They are what are known as canticles. Now, we sing about canticles, for instance, in the hymn, When Morning Gilds the Skies, my heart awakens and cries, may Jesus Christ be praised. You know that hymn? Remember it? Great, great old hymn. Further on, there's another stanza that goes like this. Be this while life is mine, my canticle divine. May Jesus Christ be praised. So what a canticle is, is it is a passage of scripture that has been put to music and is sung in worship services, but it does not come from the Psalms. If it comes from the Psalms, it's a psalm. Everything else in Scripture that's taken and is put to music is a canticle. So we have the Song of Moses, we have the Prayer of Hannah, we have lots of other canticles. But all four of these songs that we're looking at from the Gospel of Luke are canticles that have been used in the liturgy of the church down through the years. And each one of them has a name. But the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, is certainly the one that we are most familiar with. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, well, I'm going to read the passage of Scripture in which we find the Magnificat, as well as its context, because we need to see the context in which it was spoken to fully appreciate it. And then we'll look at Magnificat, and then we're going to conclude by uh, taking a brief look at Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, because the story of Mary and Elizabeth are very tightly interwoven together in the Gospel of Luke, as you'll see in, in just a moment. So let me read this passage this morning, then we'll pray, and then we'll look at the Magnificat. So I'm going to begin reading in Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man 
whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why? Is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for this season, this time of year. We thank you, Father, for this passage and for the wondrous miracle that you accomplished in bringing your Son into the flow of human history. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, for the forgiveness of sins that we have through him. And we pray your blessing now as we look together at your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this Magnificat, or Mary, the Song of Mary, it has four strophes or four stanzas, and they are as follows. First, Mary rejoices that she has been given the privilege of giving birth to the Messiah. Now, that's in verses 46 through 48. Mary rejoices that she has been given the privilege of giving birth to the Messiah. Second, Mary glorifies God because of who he is. We see that in verses 49 and 50. Mary glorifies God because of who he is. Third, Mary looks forward to God transforming the world through the Messiah. In verses 51 through 53, Mary looks forward to God transforming the world through the Messiah. And then fourth, Mary exalts God because he has been faithful to his covenant with Abraham. In verses 54 and 55, Mary exalts God because he has been faithful to his covenant with Abraham. Now, the reason that this song of Mary is called the Magnificat is because in the Latin Vulgate Bible, that's the very first word. But it means essentially the same thing as our word magnify, and our word magnify is derived from this word. So it, it really means all the same thing. But this leads to a question. When you think of magnifying something, like with a magnifying glass, you make it larger. Well, how do you make God, who is infinite, any larger than he is? It's kind of like asking the question, what do you give to the person who has everything? Well, the answer is simply this. In how Mary spoke of God, she wanted to make God as great as she possibly could. But notice what the text says. It doesn't say that my mouth magnifies the Lord. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. That is, with everything that was in her, everything that was a part of her, she sought to magnify God. This was not only with her words, but by her actions, her deeds, how she lived her life, everything that she wanted, everything that she did, everything that she said, her desire was to honor God. That's quite, quite a statement for a young teenage girl, isn't it? That we can say that of this young woman shows what exemplary character she truly had. 
She was a young woman who was dedicated to God, committed to him, and willing to serve him any way that she could. And then in the second line, it says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary clearly understood what the true key to happiness in life was. It was to glorify the Lord, to serve him, to be the person to her fullest ability that she desires him to be. And in this way, she finds joy. I've quoted question number one in the Westminster Shorter Catechism before, and I'll, I'll do it again now because it's so fitting. What is the chief end of man or the chief purpose of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see what Mary is saying here? As she seeks to glorify God, she finds joy. That's the key. That's the key to having joy in this life. It's the, we're, hired, we're hardwired to serve God, to glorify God, and in the process, to be joyful. There's so many people that go through life looking for happiness, looking for joy, and never find it. And yet it's so simple to be attained. It's by doing what God created us to do in the first place, simply to be his. But notice as well that Mary says, my soul rejoices in God my Savior. Now think of how many different ways Mary could have referred to God. God my Lord would probably be the most common, but God my creator, God my sustainer, my provider, but no, she focuses on God, my Savior. Mary realized her own need spiritually, that she too was in need of a Savior. Now, in the Old Testament, the word Savior, the word salvation, can refer to a number of things, not just spiritual salvation. But for instance, deliverance from illness, deliverance from an enemy. Um, these things are all referred to as God saving us of our salvation. But no doubt in the context of this passage, in terms even of what the angel had already said to Mary concerning the one to whom she would give birth, she knows that this is the one who is going to be her spiritual savior as well. And in the next verse, she says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Has Mary suddenly shifted from focusing on the Lord to focusing on herself? Is, is Mary here exalting in the fact 
that God is delivering her from obscurity? As she says, For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. You have lifted me up, God, from being a nobody to being somebody. Is that what she's saying in this verse? It's quite a departure from the flow of the rest of the Magnificat. And in fact, in that day and age, in Israel, everybody was obscure. Nobody was noteworthy, unless perhaps you were a religious leader in the country, or political leader, which is essentially one and the same, except for the Romans. Is this something that she really desired? More likely, there's something else that's going on here. This word that um, what we see in our Bibles as Jesus has looked on my humble estate, in the original Greek is just one word. It could also be translated humility. God has looked on my humility. Or it could also be translated God has looked on my humiliation. Now look back with me for just a moment when the angel Gabriel first announced to Mary that she would conceive and bear a son. Now I'm looking back at verse, beginning in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now notice what it, how he's described. He will be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's pretty heavy stuff. But what's the one thing that Mary responds to? What does she say? How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now, it's perfectly understandable that she would respond in that way. But there's probably more behind these words than what we realize. Have you ever thought about what else Mary could have said to Gabriel at this point? Uh, Gabriel, you realize I'm single, don't you? I'm not married. And you also must know in this society, the stigma of a young woman who has a baby that is not married. Mary could have said, Gabriel, you know, I have the rest of my life ahead of me. Do you know what this is going to do to me? I will be branded for the rest of my life as the bearer of an illegitimate child. And do you think anybody's going to believe this thing about the Holy Spirit coming upon me? All of this is in the back of Mary's mind. And now in the Magnificat, as she speaks these words, 
For he has looked on the humiliation of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary chooses to take another perspective. Rather than looking at herself and what this is going to do to her and to her reputation, rather, instead, she embraces the fact that God has chosen her to do something that no other woman in the history of mankind will ever experience or have the privilege of doing, and that is bringing the Messiah into this world. And she chooses to look at how all future generations will look at her rather than how her own immediate generation will look at her. That's what fits with the context of the rest of this Magnificat. And then we move on to the, the second stanza of this um, Magnificat. But, but first, notice the tremendous humbleness that Mary is displaying here. A willingness to accept what the Lord has given to her and instead look at the rich honor that God is bestowing upon her. And as she, and as she said once before, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Then in the second place, Mary, Mary glorifies God because of who he is in verses 49 and 50. Now, there is a, a very, very subtle shift here because she's still referring to what God has done for her when she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. But notice now the shift is away from what Mary, what God has done for Mary and really to who God is. Because notice the attributes of God that she touches upon here. God is mighty. God is holy. And God is merciful. You see, now she's shifting her focus away from herself and looking at the person of God himself. And she's also expanding what she's referring to beyond herself when she says, and his mercy is for all those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, let me pause here for just a moment. At the conclusion of our worship service, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper. And I wonder if you have ever come to Communion Sunday and thought, I'm not really worthy to do this. I look at my life, I sin, I confess my sin, I repeat my sin, I confess my sin, I repeat my sin. How can God consider me worthy to come to the table when I keep failing? You know, the answer is right here in this verse. 
His mercy is for those who fear him. Now, to fear him means to revere him, to view God as who he is, and to adore him, and, and to honor him, to seek to obey him, to acknowledge him, and to revere him. And if we have that attitude towards God, this verse says, then God's mercy is for you. And that mercy is found at the table through the bread and the cup. So keep that in mind when Satan wants to convince you that you are not worthy of the table because his word says, if you fear him, if you revere him, you are worthy. Now, in the third place, Mary looks forward to God transforming the world through the Messiah in verses 51 through 53. Now, this is a little tricky because if you read these verses in your Bible, they're all past tense. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of the hearts. It looks like this is all something that's already taken place. This is past tense. Now, I hate to do this, but the only way to explain this is to get into a little bit of grammar, Greek grammar. Um, I, I'm going to try and give you just enough so you understand, but not so much that your eyes glaze over. Okay? Greek has a tense that we don't have. Some of you are familiar with it. It's called the aorist tense. Also, with Greek verbs, we're all caught up in the tense of a verb. Present tense, past tense, future tense, so on and so forth. Well, there's another element of verbs that's called aspect. An aspect has to do with whether an action is completed or incomplete. For instance, if I say, Mary went to the store, well, that is completed action, right? Past tense, completed action. If I say, Mary is going to the store, well, that's incomplete action. She's still in the process of doing that. Usually, when we speak of the future, that's also incomplete action as well. The aspect is incomplete. But there's one exception. When we speak of what God is going to do in the future, it is as certain as if it had already taken place. Right? Because God is sovereign and all-powerful and all-knowing. Therefore, the, there are six verbs here that are in the aorist tense, but they could also be translated as future tense. So let me reread them, because this is really the intent of what these verses say. He will show strength with his arm. He will scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He will bring down the mighty from their thrones, and he will exalt those of humble estate. He will fill the hungry with good things, and he will send the rich away 
empty. Doesn't that sound like the Messianic kingdom? Doesn't that sound like what the entire Old Testament has promised with regard to the Messiah when he establishes his kingdom in its fullness on earth? That is exactly what this part of the Magnificat is talking about. Now, let me be clear, though. This does not necessarily refer to all rulers who sit on their thrones, but rather to those who misuse their power for their own benefit rather than to serve the people, which is why God put them there in the first place. And it isn't that God will send all the rich away empty because not all rich are evil in their hearts. Look at Abraham. Abraham was a very, very rich man. And God never threatened to take away what he had because he was a righteous man. But this portion of the Magnificat looks forward to when the Messiah will establish his kingdom on earth and it will have no end. And then in the fourth place, the fourth stanza, we see that God has been faithful to his covenant with Abraham. So when we read, he has helped his servant Israel, here he's speaking of the nation of Israel. And we could look at the countless number of times in the Old Testament when God has indeed helped Israel. And that all stems from the covenant that God originally made with Abraham, which is what's referred to in the next line. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, remember, God said, I will make of you a great and mighty nation. And then he added to that, and in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. How would God do that? Through the Messiah. Through the Messiah. So there we have it. Mary's Magnificat. A wonderful statement of praise to God and thanks to God from a young woman who is very exemplary in so many, many ways. But there's one more thing we want to consider, and that is um, the elder relative that she came to see, whose name was Elizabeth, who would give birth to John the Baptist. And when Mary greets Elizabeth, and then Elizabeth responds to her. Um, notice what she says. And in um, verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she proclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, 
and blessed is the fruit of the womb. And then she blesses her once again. She says, and blessed, in verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment that was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, did you notice that it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit? This is a catchphrase that is used often with those in the Old Testament when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's for a particular person, for a particular reason, for a particular period of time. Whether they were going to prophesy or whether God was going to use them in another way, little different from the filling of the Spirit in the New Testament, which is for all believers, and it's something we're to seek to have all the time. But anyway, here Elizabeth is functioning as a prophetess. Now you may have heard that John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now that can be a little confusing because you might say, yeah, but when I go to my Bible, John is in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Well, we can tweak that a little bit and say John was the last of the Old Covenant prophets. You see, the Old Covenant continues up until the time that Jesus dies on the cross. And that's why when we take communion and what Jesus said on the night of the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That is when the new covenant begins. Not when the New Testament begins, but when Jesus' death takes place. So here we have Elizabeth also functioning as a prophetess. And Elizabeth is, in those two blessings of Mary, is saying things that she could know in no way know in terms of human ability. It was given to her by the Lord. Now, with what she said about Mary, she had an understanding of the significance of the birth of Jesus and that he indeed was the Messiah. And really what she did was she anticipated a hymn that would not be written for another almost 2,000 years. In 1984, a Christian singer and writer by the name of Mark Lowry wrote a poem that was later put to music a few years later by a Christian musician and songwriter named Buddy Green. And I want to adapt from, from that poem because these are words that Elizabeth could have spoken just as well and they fit so well with what we're looking at here this morning with regard to Mary. Mary, do you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, do you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? And do you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? That this child that you will soon deliver will one day deliver you. Mary, do you know 
that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, do you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Do you know that your baby boy has walked where angels tread? And that when you kiss your little boy, you kiss the face of God. Mary, do you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, do you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? And do you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That the child that you will hold is the great I am. This is why Christmas is so full of wonder and awe. It's because at the proper time, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son, of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, this time of year is truly a marvel, something that we cannot fully understand or grasp, but we can fully appreciate and give you thanks for what you have done for us. The miracle that the second person of the Holy Trinity could take on human flesh and be born as a little babe is way beyond our ability to understand. We can only accept. And we do indeed accept it with gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. May this season, Father, be rich for us. May we fully experience the awe and wonder of this season. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.